We come together to worship the true and living God this morning, and we come to hear him speak to us through his word. So if you'd like to open your corner posts uh, or your Bibles uh, to Ecclesiastes chapter 6, I'm going to read from verse 10 to chapter 7 uh, in verse 14. Whatever exists has already been named, and what man is has been known. No man can contend with one who is stronger than he. The more words, the less the meaning. And how does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a man in life during the few and meaningless days he passes through like a shadow? Who can tell him what will happen under the sun after he is gone? A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed a wise man's rebuke than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. Extortion turns a wise man into a fool and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this, that wisdom preserves the life of its possessor. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. 
Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a joy it is to come and worship you together, to be in your presence, to be with your people, our brothers and sisters in Christ, those whom you have called, chosen and redeemed. And Lord, to hear your voice speaking to us through your word. Your word is truth. Your word is a light to our feet. And Father, we pray that you would bless this time as we sit at your feet now. That you would open our eyes and that we would see wonderful things in your word. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would block out the distractions, the anxieties, the worries, the stresses of the past week or maybe even of the week ahead. And we pray that you would feed us on your word. We pray that you would encourage us. We pray that you would strengthen our faith. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know that we're living in a truly secular age when comic books and their movies are more popular than ever. Whether it's Marvel or DC, Superman or Batman, comic book characters are giving, sadly, more and more people in the West not just a sense of enjoyment, but also of comfort and ultimately of meaning. One of the things which makes comic books so popular is uh, the artwork that is associated with it. You might even call it the secular iconography. But it's just not just the action and the colour, but I think the overarching story which goes with it, and hence the Marvel franchise of 20-plus movies. It's what scholars and academics actually refer to as the meta-narrative. That is the grand story which makes sense of life and holds all things together. And in this current era, I think, which is characterised more and more by unbelief, it's the one thing which gives people in the world a sense of the transcendent, a sense even of the divine. And some people have gone so far as to say that it's not just shopping centres, but in particular movie centres or movie cinemas, which are the temples of this modern era. They are the place where people go to escape. They are, the, they are the place where people go to find meaning. In fact, that's precisely what some comic book heroes are, aren't they? Characters such as Thor are the reincarnation of the traditional Norse gods. A number of years ago, there was this award-winning documentary about public education in America, and it was called, I wonder if you've seen it, Waiting for Superman. And it started with these words by a teacher in the US named Jeffrey Canada, where he said, that's, that's weird, isn't it? Guy in the US named Jeffrey Canada, poor bloke. He says, one of the saddest days of my life was when my mother told me that Superman did not exist. I was a comic book reader. And I just loved Superman because even in the depths of the ghetto, you just thought, he's coming. I don't know when, but he will always show up 
and he saves all the good people. Sounds religious, doesn't it? The teacher goes on to say, I was in the fourth grade and I said, Ma, do you think Superman is real? And she said, Superman is not real. I was like, he's not? What do you mean he's not? No, he's not real, she said. And she thought I was crying because it's like Santa Claus is not real, but I was crying because there was no one coming with enough power to save us. The reason why that is so tragic is because a man-made comic book story had taken over the real live action place and plan of God. That's tragic. For as we all know, and as we've all come to um, acknowledge this morning, that's why Jesus came. He came with divine power to seek and to save the lost. To deliver us from the power of Satan. To forgive us our sins. And to give us the sure and certain hope of eternal life. Deep down, we all long for some kind of meta-narrative that is going to give us meaning and purpose. And in particular, we long for somebody who has the power, who has the strength to save. And that's precisely what the Lord Jesus Christ has come to do. Now, the passage from Ecclesiastes that we have before us today actually provides that for us. And it does it in, I think, four profound key ways. The first three have to do with ourselves as people who need saving. And that's fundamental. Because unless you first are convinced you need saving, you won't turn to Jesus as a saviour. And the last point has to do with God, who ultimately is the only one who can and does save us. Okay, the first point then relates to our ignorance in verses 10 to 12 of chapter 6. Because you see, despite what we might think, the truth of the matter is that we actually understand or know very little. We're like the proverbial blind men climbing over the elephant, trying to describe what it is like. By our own, under the sun, that's a good illustration of the grasp that we have on reality. I know some people think that, well, therefore all religions just grab a part of the truth, but the secular humanist steps back and he really sees that it's an elephant And that you don't see the big picture. But do you see how actually profoundly arrogant that is? Because what the secular humanist is saying is, you're all blind or at least need glasses, but I see. I see that you've only grasped a little bit of it. The reality that the Bible says, though, is that God has revealed. God has come to show us the truth. If you still have your Bibles open, then just take a look with me at verse 10. Because as Solomon says elsewhere, there is nothing new under the sun. Unlike what the comic books try to say, uh, we don't live in a multiverse. We live 
in a universe. There is only one reality. There are not multiple versions of it. Which means that ever since God created the world and mankind fell into sin, we are all living in a closed system. Nothing new is being or has been brought into existence. I mean, as we all know, we are continually in danger of losing species, not gaining them, aren't we? Not only that, but we're incredibly, and I know this is shocking and somewhat offensive, but Solomon says we are incredibly ignorant. Despite what we might think, we just don't grasp the big picture. We don't see the wood for the trees. We don't see the elephant in the room. As he says in verse 10, whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Now, I think the one stronger than he is God. And regardless of how strong or how clever we are, we can never outmatch him for wisdom. Solomon goes on to say in verse 11, the more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? We could write or publish hundreds of articles, thousands of books. We could attend hundreds of thousands of lectures, but they would only be a mere drop in the limitless ocean of God's wisdom and knowledge. A lady at my old church in Sydney is one of the leading pathologists in the world. In fact, she's responsible for writing um, the textbooks which are used at university today. Uh, she was telling me once that when she first started studying medicine at Sydney Uni, the Dean of Medicine gave this lecture. And he was very upfront and he said this, a third of the things we teach you here are going to be wrong. But even more unfortunately, we don't yet know what that third actually is. Now, as alarming as that is to hear, it's refreshing to have somebody, especially as a medical doctor who often think they're God, admit that they don't know it all. In fact, as a species, we hardly know anything, don't we? Our knowledge really is very, very limited. Because as we've been seeing each week, as we make our way through Ecclesiastes, death takes it all away. It is the great equaliser of human existence. It is the one thing which lays us low and exposes our ignorance like nothing else. And it takes away some of the brightest, or always the brightest and the smartest. For who can reveal what is going to happen next? And how often are the greatest minds taken away through some kind of sickness or accident or tragedy? As Solomon says repeatedly, it is a grievous evil. 
It is Havel. It is a chasing after wind. All of which leads us to the second point, and that is relating to our finiteness in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 7. Now, this particular section can seem pretty depressing when you first read it because it's all about how it's better to go to a funeral than it is to go to a party. And that sounds a little strange, to say the least, because funerals are incredibly sad things. Is Solomon then being a masochist or something like that? Is he saying that we should somehow or other delight in grief and despair? Well, clearly Solomon is not saying that we should value being sad merely for sadness' sake. Now, what he's saying is that the more you are conscious of death, the more it will clarify for you what it means to live. The more you are conscious of death, the more it will clarify for you what it means to live. Because while death is described in the Bible as being the great enemy, the Bible also shows that death can also be one of the most powerful evangelists. What do I mean? Well, whenever you go to a funeral, it makes you reflect on what life is about, doesn't it? In particular, it makes you ask the question, what am I doing? Am I living a life that is worthwhile? Even more to the point, is how am I pleasing to, am I living a life that is pleasing to God, whom the Bible says that one day I will have to give an account? I think, speaking personally, I think I need to go to a funeral at least a couple of times a year for the good of my own soul. Not just to show my respects, but to snap me out of the delusion that life is just going to go on and on. Because it's not. I came across uh, something once, which is a really good exercise in what you might call existential self-awareness. The author said once a day, hold out your right hand, palm out, fingers to the sky, and imagine that the timeline of history reaching a kilometre to your left and eternity to your right. Now, your time on earth intersects roughly with the width of your hand, give or take. That's how fleeting and transient our life on earth is right now. A mate of mine used to apply this particular principle to parenting. He said, we need to keep in mind, and this is really good advice, especially if you've got young children, the days are long, but the years are short. The days are long, but the years are short. And can I just say to all of our parents out here, It's like that. And they're gone. So treasure the time you have with them. Because before we know it, they've left home and indeed our own lives have come to an end. They're all of a sudden over and as Solomon tells us, hardly anyone is going to remember us after we've gone. And even if they do remember us, some of us will have our statues torn down. 
Once again, that's why Solomon is saying to us here, is so sobering and so profound. It's the proverbial cold water splashed on the face of our souls to make us wake up from the delusion that we won't be held accountable. He says in verses 5 and 6, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Better have somebody to say the hard thing to you than to just sing you the latest Taylor Swift song. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Some people in this world, I think especially comedians, they, they treat everything as a joke, don't they? They mock and they make fun of everything. And it's as though finding humour in everything, particularly topics which are deeply serious, is the most important thing to do of all, especially things like religion or politics. But Solomon says that the sound of frivolous laughter, and you can hear it, can't you? It's like the crackling of kindling or even logs on the fire. That's how superficial it is. Yes, it's superficially entertaining, but it's actually Havel. It's vanity. Or it's literally vapour, and therefore it quickly passes away. Because it's meaningless to treat everything as a joke. Everything is not a joke. And there are subjects which require serious consideration and sober reflection. And if we're wise, we'll engage in it. That leads us to the third point. Because not only does Solomon humble us by analysing our ignorance and our finitude, but in particular, our fallen character. That's one of the most obvious things about life under the sun, isn't it? It's that, that no one is perfect. And that even the best of our actions has been perverted or distorted by human sin. Even our righteous acts, Isaiah says, are like filthy rags in God's sight. There is not one act we do where we can claim to have been purely good. Now, the term wise or wisdom occurs a total of seven times in this particular section. Uh, which is significant because it means that it is the big idea or the most prominent theme. But as we saw a couple of weeks ago, because life is Hevel, it's important that we speak and act in a godly way. Just cast your eyes over what Solomon says in verses 7 to 12. There are so many different aspects that he covers here. And each and every one of them is extremely important, so we probably should slow down and consider them. For instance, Solomon talks about how bribery corrupts the very core of our being. You cannot accept a bribe without it doing something to you. Something very corrosive to your own personal being and integrity. Or that in verse 8 it is much better to be patient than it is to be proud. That's connected to the tendency to always go around 
starting new things, but never having the forbearance to complete them. Hence, Solomon says that the end of a thing is better than the beginning. Or then there's what Solomon says in verse 9. He says, Do not be quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the hearts of fools. Oh, look, I'm ashamed to admit that I've especially struggled with this particular tendency over the years. I've allowed my frustration with the situation to get the better of me more times than I should have. It's so much wiser to be patient, gentle, and especially self-controlled. And this is something which I'm really praying the Lord will change and develop in me. There's a great uh, book by Jonathan Edwards, who was one of, I think, America's greatest theologians. And one of the things which he says, which has really convicted me, is how easily righteous zeal can turn into ungodly anger. In particular, in our passion for the truth, we can lose our gentleness in dealing with other people. Edward says this, It is alarmingly natural to pass off cantankerous or scoffing speech as concern for truth when it really is just a form of self-vindication. A healthy self-suspicion ought to accompany all moral zeal, Edward says. And when gentleness is absent, that is a sign that our zeal is not of the spirit, but of the flesh. When gentleness is absent, that is a sign that our zeal is not of the spirit, but of the flesh. The Apostle James puts it even better than Edwards, because he was inspired by God's Holy Spirit. He says this, My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to be angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Another aspect of our fallen character is a surprising one. Solomon addresses the folly of nostalgia. Where we constantly look back to the good old days. The time when we were children or maybe another era in Australian history, such as the 1950s, or maybe a particular point in your life, like when you were in high school, or when you were at uni, or when you had left uni, when you didn't have children, <laughs> when you didn't have children, when the children were still at home. It's a vicious cycle. <laughs> the Spirit of God says through Solomon that there is something profoundly foolish in glorifying the past. Because let's face it, every age we live in has both its joys as well as its challenges. There has never been a time in human history which is perfect and free from the effects of human sin. But the problem is, when we long for some mythical golden age of the past, such as our childhood, then we fail to fully enjoy or take responsibility for what it means to live now in the present. And that 
obviously is foolish. You see, this life might be transitory and fleeting, but that doesn't mean living wisely is not without its many advantages. Because obviously it does. In fact, Solomon says the benefits of wisdom are like the protection that comes from money. You've got to love how realistic Solomon is in this regard. Did that make you look twice when we read that this morning? As we saw last week, he warns us about the dangers of loving money, but that doesn't mean that money is evil in and of itself. It's not. Money is good. It's the love of money that's bad. And as such, there are many advantages to having money, especially if it's used wisely. For instance, it can protect us from hardships and it can relieve all kinds of suffering. So please don't think that the Bible is against money. The problem arises when we put our hope in the gifts that God gives us more than the giver of those gifts. You see? It's when we trust in those things rather than Him. All of which brings us to the central truth. And that's contained in verses 13 and 14. And that is that God alone is the one who is in sovereign control. All the way throughout this section, we've been considering how we as fallen beings are imperfect. We're ignorant. We're finite. We're fallen. It's all very bleak and depressing, isn't it? What hope do we have of finding meaning under the sun then, in and of ourselves? Nothing. It's absolutely impossible. And just when you think you're going to find it, you'll die. But then in verses 13 and 14, Solomon addresses our attention on the Lord God himself. And in verse 13, he says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? And so, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Now, there's something profoundly humbling as well as comforting in these verses, isn't there? Because they declare to us that despite what we might think, we're not in control. So much happens in this meaningless life that we experience, which is outside of our control and is completely beyond us, that life seems crazy. And if we're completely honest with ourselves, as human beings, we are more responders to situations than we are creators of it. Everything we have and do is under the sovereign hand of God. The Lord Jesus Christ himself says, not a sparrow falls from the sky apart from my Father's will. Not that we shouldn't take individual initiative or be responsible moral agents or something like that, for God calls on us to exercise careful planning and especially prayerful consideration. Fools rush in where angels dare to tread. But the truth is we need to constantly keep in mind that the Lord is in control over both our joy as well as our adversity. 
And not only is he sovereign over both of those things, but the deeper reason why he does that is so that we might remain, is so that we might know him, and we might be conformed to his image, so that we might have the humility to realize that there is a God and we are not him. That's why he does it. Because the temptation, friends, is that we function and act in practice as if we are little gods. That we are in control. But as you only have to live for a little while to realize that at the snap of his fingers, life's out of control. The car veers off. The child gets sick. The beloved one dies. The person in my congregation in Sydney, again, amazingly, I, I, I consider him one of the leading paediatricians in at least Sydney, but probably beyond. And he's, you know, one of the hardest funerals I've ever had to go to was seeing his son die of a liver disease. Came home from church one Sunday, not feeling well. A week later was in hospital. A week, a month later, it was, done, was dead. And he couldn't save him. Solomon says, so that man may find out, may, may not find out anything that will be after him. Who knows what's going to happen next? You don't. I definitely don't. But God does. That's the really key insight into all of this which Solomon gives. As he said back in verse 10 of chapter 6, whatever has come uh, to be has already been named and it is known what man is and he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. God willing, hopefully, we'll look at the book of Job maybe next year. But that's, that's Job's answer, or God's answer to Job. When he finally gets to talk to God, God doesn't tell him, oh, by the way, I was having this deal with Satan that I, I told him he wouldn't cave. I told him he wouldn't get, never tells him that. God just simply says to Job, I'm sorry, who are you? Did you make the world? And at that point, Job's like, look, I shouldn't have spoken. And God just doubles down. He goes, let's go further. Were you there when I made the mountains? Are you there when the birds fly across the sky? No. You see, you fully grasp what Solomon is referring to here. He's saying that it's good for you and I to know our place in the universe. You and I are not in control. And that means that we have to give up the illusion, as all the comic, or some of the comic books said, showing my age here, of being masters of the universe, of being in control of our own destiny. For we have to take off the crown of our own self-sovereignty which we have coronated ourselves with, and we have to bend our knees to an even greater king. Because in Jesus is the one who is infinitely stronger than the strong man who once kept us captive to do his devilish will. The one who, because he has defeated sin and death, can inform us accurately of the future. 
as as we saw before in our Bible reading from Romans 8, the Lord is working all things together for good for those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Whether joy or adversity, whether good, whether evil. You see, God has shown how much he loves us through his son, such that through trusting in Jesus, we ourselves have been adopted as his sons and daughters. And not only that, but he has poured his Holy Spirit into our hearts so that we can wonderfully, mercifully be transformed in the image and likeness of his son. All of which means this, and please grasp this, Nothing now can separate you from God's love. Not sickness or death. Not spiritual powers of good or evil. Nor anything else in all of creation can separate you from the love God has for you in Christ. Do you believe that? We are safe. In the Father's hands. Do you ever feel like giving up? Do you ever feel like you just have no strength left in the tank? Then God then let God's promises encourage you that you are never alone. The Lord God Almighty cares for you and will never let you go. For he gives us knowledge. When we're ignorant, he gives us eternal life in the place of our own finitude. And he gives us his spirit so that we'll walk in wisdom rather than folly, righteousness rather than sin. Ultimately, we are safe in the Father's hands. And even that bad thing you're going through is for your good. So rest assured, confident and secure because he loves you. When times are good, rejoice. Rejoice, praise and thank him for the good things that he's given you to enjoy. Delight in them because he does delight in you But when times are difficult or hard, remember that the Lord still loves and cares for you. He's not stopped being in control, but that this too is part of his sovereign plan and purpose. So continue to trust him and give him glory. Do as Job did. Confess, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. That's his sovereign right and prerogative. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because the one who is stronger than you and I will never let us go. Even though all hell should rail against us. Well, on that note, why don't we spend some time in prayer, shall we? Let's pray. Ah, Lord and Heavenly Father. You always do immeasurably more than we could ever imagine or ask. We thank you for how you've poured out your spirit upon us this morning and you've given us ears to hear your spirit speak to us through your word. We thank you for these profound truths that you um, 
have written and declared. In your grace have given. Now give us the grace, Lord, to trust and obey. Father, you know where each and every one of us is at this morning. For some, it will be the depths of despair. For others, praise you, it's a good time at the moment. There are many things to be happy and joyful about. But regardless of what situation we find ourselves in, Lord, may you give us the power to say with Job, blessed be your name. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to follow you, to change those things in our lives which we need to change, which are not pleasing to you. And help us to live our lives in love and service. And we pray all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.